was risen from the dead, the, the faithful one, who is witness of Christ and of our uh, witness of the Father and of his love for us, he is the one who has done what is necessary to bring us into a relationship with him, first by removing our sins by his own blood. Step one. We stopped there. We didn't really get into the the rest of the package that Christ accomplished for us. And we want to spend a little time in this. And we're going to be looking at some other verses. um, Because really what he's going to be describing is, in a nutshell, what's going to go on in the rest of the book. And so really in just a few verses, he's going to share our future. It's going to be drawn out over the course of the chapters to come. We're going to get details and specifics. Um, not sometimes as many specifics and details as we want, but there's enough. But for now, he wants to introduce right up front, right at the very beginning, here is your future. Let's spell it out for you. And here we go. He says, he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. And they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And then we have this, the narrative goes into a direct statement from God. saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. And so couched between these two descriptions, these two uh, very full descriptions of Jesus Christ, both um, by John in verse 5 and then by Christ himself in verse 8, we have in a nutshell what we're going to be seeing in the chapters to come. And so we're going to see that he is going to make us, and, and really it's in uh, Ariston, and so it has made us kings, and priests. We are rulers. And so we find the one who is the ruler over the kings of the earth in verse 5, coming, loving us, dying for us, shedding his blood to cover our sins. But that wasn't enough. He also has made us rulers with him, kings with him, serving with him. And we want to look at how this is developed in the book of Revelation a little bit. There's three other passages that we're going to reference uh, that, that ties these together. Rulers and, and then the second one is priests to his God. Remember, Jesus as the high priest then brings us as priests. So there's no other human uh, intermediary between us and God because Jesus is a high priest, we are all priests, and we are a nation of priests uh, as the church. And so we're going to see this designation Uh, lifted here and put into Revelation on multiple occasions. Let's look at them very quickly. We'll just do an overview of them. Let's go to Revelation chapter 5. I think it's important where they are placed. Just as it was important how the seven spirits of God were described and where the spirits of God were and and its function, his function, um, we're going to look at this. In Revelation 5.10, we have... um, The new song in heaven. Remember, what precipitates the new song? The arrival of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so, the Lamb of God has been to earth and now he has arrived back in heaven, newly slain. He is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks for a lion. He sees a lamb as if it had just been slain. And so, this slain lamb comes and it incites heaven to change its song. And from what we can tell... This is the first time the song has been changed ever. 
All right, the song of chapter 4, remember, was the song of Isaiah, the Old Testament song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Focus on God as the Creator. <coughs> and now there's a new song in heaven. And I want you to take you to verse 10. Well, let's just read verse 9 as well, because you've got to read the whole song. It's not fair to just take the one portion of it. It says, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain. And have redeemed them to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Have made them kings and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, I know your version has we, where I said they and them. Um, and that's an issue that we're going to get to when we get to the text. You have to wait for that when we get to chapter 5. Uh, but I want you to notice that we have the shedding of the blood in the song. You were slain, have by your blood have redeemed us, have purchased us out of our sin to be your own, but not to be your slaves, but rather we come to verse 10, and has have made us, uh, the believers, kings and priests to our God. The exact same phrase that we saw in chapter 1. It's been launched us forward into what is going to be presented. Well, what is the work of Christ? Well, we know it's his earthly work that Christ did. Here is where he shed his blood. We know when that happened. That happened, um, what, 1,980 years ago, something like that. Um, That happened. So we know where we are at, where that event occurs. And so we come forward into chapter 5, and we know where we are, because we know where that event happened. We know when heaven was impacted by the work of Christ. When he rose again. Remember, um, his first description, firstborn from the dead. He's the resurrected one. And so he has arrived in heaven with as a newly slain lamb, and he's there making us kings and priests, rulers and priests. Uh, and of course, in a Hebrew mindset, we have three roles of Christ, right? You guys all know those, prophet, priest, and king. And he shares those roles with us, that we are joint heirs. And of course, we have a prophetic word before us. And so the focus here is on these two, that we are kings, rulers, and we are priests. We are holy ones that are to serve before the throne of God. We have a rightful place now in this heavenly realm because of the work of Christ as the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the earth. And so we have this this chronological identification that we can tie in from chapter 1, bring it into chapter 5, and we know where we are. We know who we are. Who is he talking about here? He's talking about those who have received Christ as their Savior and Lord. So let's go to the next usage, chapter 7. Also very important. Chapter 7, of course, we're looking at the latter part of the chapter. We're not going to look at the ceiling of the 144,000. We're really looking at the second group in the chapter. And again, a great multitude, we say in verse 9, John sees a great multitude which no one could number. Uh, It's of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. Uh, They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so we're in the same place. Um, But some time has passed. We know that from chapter 6. We'll see that later. We find that salvation in verse 10 says, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
The angels are there. The elders are there. The four living creatures are there. They fall on their face before the throne and worship God. Uh, and again, they have this statement, Amen, blessing, glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And of course, then we're asked, who are these people? And um, do you know who they are? And John says, I don't know who they are. You know who they are. And we have the description, verse 14. These are the ones, and let's skip the next phrase. Let's go to the second phrase describing them. Washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who are these people? Let's not get tripped up on the intermediary phrase. Who are the people who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Christians. This is describing, again, those who have gone through the church age, who have received Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Let's not get trapped in the, in the verbiage about the Great Tribulation. Um, and what, historically, that has always brought down to us, that these are a different group of people than the local church, than the, univer- the Catholic church. Oh, I said Catholic. Catholic just means universal. The universal church. Okay? Uh, it's wrong that they, the Roman church stole that word because it's a good word. Catholic just means universal. And they, when they, you say the Roman Catholic church, you're saying that they're the universal church and no one else is. So call them what they are. They're the Roman church, and the Catholic church is really all believers from Pentecost to the rapture. Okay? So sorry I interjected that term without, it just shook some of you up. All right, and so the, the, the universal church, we use the word universal because they stole the word Catholic. But that's what the Catholic church means, is all believers from Pentecost rapture. All who had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so their clothing, their sin-stained clothing is purified, and now it is white, and it is because of the blood of the Lamb. But I want you to look um, at the designations. There's two designations for them after that. Um, verse 15. And the two designations line up perfectly with the two descriptions in 510 in chapter 1. You ready? They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So what is their double function? Where is their function? They are in two different places simultaneously. What are those two places? Before the throne and what happens on a throne? You rule, you reign, you're king if you're sitting on the throne. And so we are there at the throne room of God and serving there as rulers with him. Secondly, we're also at the simultaneously serving him in what's called a temple. And what do you have to be to serve in the temple? A priest. And so we have the idea that we are rulers and priests combined again, that these people are both rulers and priests who are washed by the blood of the Lamb. You cannot miss who this talks about. This has to be the church. Has to be. You can't hardly miss it unless you try. And we've tried for a hundred years to not find the church in this verse or in this passage. All because... We see those words, the Great Tribulation, which, by the way, is going to come out still tonight. I think I'll get there. Depends on how excited I get about all this stuff. And so that's our second usage of this role, this place where Jesus Christ has elevated us to be rulers or kings and priests before the Lord, to serve him. And so you're going to serve in the temple of the Lord. You say, well, 
kind of work is there to do the temple and the throne room? Well, we'll get to that when we get into chapters 20 and following, and we look at our eternal state. And that's where we're going to go right now real quick, because that's the last place that this is used. Revelation chapter 20. We come to verse 6. And uh, remember, we are in the time of the thousand-year reign, the resurrection uh, has occurred um, of life, and it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Do you see the connection again? We have these this double uh, function of priests who reign, king priests that are there with the Lord. And so we come into the thousand-year reign of Christ, and who's there with him? We are. The king priests are there with him. They have been resurrected. They have been fully resurrected. The, the complete resurrection uh, of righteousness has occurred, and so the church is with Christ. And when you see them there, uh, we find blessed is holy as he who has partaken of this. And... Again, um, the rest of the dead aren't going to live again until the thousand years are finished. The first resurrection is completed. We've already been resurrected by the time this happens. So before the thousand-year reign of Christ, the believers are resurrected. All of them, including the 144,000 who are unique and yet still somehow connected to the church. And that's why they are listed in chapter 7 before the church is in heaven. Before the church arrives in heaven in mass, there is a description of the sealing of the 144,000. We'll get to that when we arrive in chapter 7. And so we have these four usages of this uh, condition that God has brought the church into. That by the shed blood of the Lamb, we are priests and kings. And we see its progression. That we see us formed in chapter 4. Uh, five. You find us formed. There's the church in its formation, built on this recent chronological work of Jesus Christ. We find them uh, two chapters later in chapter seven, a completed group, really, with the exception of uh, of 144,000 that have a special designation and a special purpose. Uh, they're going to join them though before the thousand year reign. And so it's a completed group. And so somewhere between chapter 5 and chapter 7, you have to have the church age, which we know now is at least 1,980 years. That's how long it's been since Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. And then, of course, by the time the seven years of wrath are over, which encompasses a large portion of Revelation, um, you're going to have to have everyone together, ruling with Christ in the thousand year and serving as priests before him for those thousand years. So that thousand year reign, we are there in this Jerusalem reigning with Christ and when the nations come, because they have to, if they don't, they get faminated. That's a new word I created. They... they, they God brings famine on their land. If they don't come and sacrifice to the lamb at Jerusalem, 
We are the priests. We are the go-betweens there. Because they aren't priests. If they were believers, they wouldn't need a priest. And so the idea that everybody on earth comes to know Christ as their Savior isn't really valid. Because they are coming and the believers serve as reigning with Christ and being priests before Christ on behalf of the nations that have to come. So we have that responsibility there all the way into chapter 20. And so we can see the progression the, the, of the church by just picking up this term introduced to us in Revelation chapter 1 and following it through. So we are projected into it and we recognize that all of this is not to our glory back in chapter 1 verse 6, but it's to the glory of the Father. It's to the glory of God and it's to His dominion forever and ever. It's for His ruling. And so we have that set forth there. And, and again, we're going to look into it, but we find the church here described in verse 6. We come into verse 7 and we find the pivotal event of the book. And it's not the seven years of outpouring of his wrath. That's not pivotal to the people just described in the verse before it. What is pivotal to the people described in the prior verse is this event. And of all events in Revelation, the only one we really want to see and know is this one, right? All the rest is kind of, it's, it's good to know that that's going to happen, but the one I really want to know about is this one. When will Jesus come again? That's the one, the rapture. And now we have an issue because now we have two comings of Christ. We see them in Revelation. We're going to have one where he comes in the clouds and one where there's no clouds. We're going to have one when he's in the air, one when he's on the earth, one when he's gathering the elect, and one when he is judging the lost. So we recognize these are two very different things. They are described differently, consistently differently. So when you see this description, it's referring to the rapture, the catching up of the church, when you see that description, it's referring to is establishing the millennial kingdom and setting foot on the earth. Now, what we have introduced over the last few years, and really not just last few years, it's been decades, is that this next event is a secret. How many of you watched, um, back in the day, the movies came out, and that's when you actually had a movie projector, they didn't have DVDs or VCRs even, before any of that, there was a group that put out movies, and we'd watch them at a lot of youth events, um, and there was a Distant Thunder. Remember those movies? There's three of them. There's a trilogy of them. Any of you else, have you watched those? It was like in the, okay, it was when I was a teenager, so it was like in the late 70s, 80s. You watched them? They show them at your church? A Thief in the Night, a Distant Thunder, and one more. There's three of them. And so, and, and, it was a secret. It was just going to happen, and nobody's going to know what's going on, and, and suddenly all these people are going to disappear, and, and it's just a singular event. There's just a rapture event. Nowhere will you find that described as a singular event, and in fact, uh, you don't find it as a secret event at all. This is the key event for the people who have been made priests and kings by the shed blood of the Lamb. Here's the event they want to know about. He is coming with clouds. 
And every eye will see him. And just to make sure you know what every eye means, not just every Christian's eye, it's every eye, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Now, in both 1 Thessalonians 4.17, let's read them. I, I, I'm going to take the time. 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to do it right. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, let's read this description. It says, well, we'll read 16 and 17. If the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, a voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And let's go back a little farther to Matthew 24. And you can get me started in Matthew 24 again and um, how we've abused this chapter, but we're not going to have time to do that. Let's pick it up in verse 30 and let's just ignore all the rhetoric of, of the, what's going on in the modern pre-tribulationalism. Verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. What does that sound like? All John is telling you is exactly the same thing that Jesus told him. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together as elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Is that not the same event? Yes. Perfectly aligned, correct? Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And again, I'm going to skip some aspects of this because I uh, want to focus ourselves on, its, on the key descriptions. I want to pick up in verse 14. It says, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said of the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? They have just seen something in the heavens. Clouds rolling back as a scroll. Um, We also know that there's an earthquake. There is... uh, the sun and the moon darkening. And we find this event where everyone is seeing something in the heavens, in the clouds rolling back as a scroll. And from their perspective, they are struck with mourning, with fear. Look at how they're described. They're hiding themselves in caves and rocks because they're afraid of something. They're mourning. Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They have seen something. Zechariah tells us what they've seen. So does Revelation 1. They said that they have seen the face of him. And let's go to Zechariah 12. Get us into the Old Testament here. I told you we'd be in Zechariah quite a bit because there's a lot of imagery from Zechariah and Revelation. Zechariah chapter 12. Verse 10. 
It says, I'll pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and the wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and the wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of Shemai by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. What's going to happen? They're going to look on one they pierced, which is exactly the terminology that John says, listen, everyone's going to see Christ when he comes. Even the ones who pierced him, referring to the whole Jewish nation, is going to see Christ. And they're not going to accept Jesus as their Savior at this point. They are going to mourn because they realize, oh, we have made a horrible mistake. The horrible mistake they have made is that they have just aligned themselves with a man of sin instead of the son of righteousness. And having just aligned themselves in a seven-year treaty with the man of sin, boom, here comes the sky rolling back, and they see the one that they pierced. The Messiah. The true living one. And you don't find them coming to Christ in belief, necessarily. You find them in mourning. Because they have seven years to endure. They have seven years ahead of them. Because they have rejected the Messiah. And now they see him in all of his power and glory and 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 in all the events surrounding this event, and it says that they will mourn because of him. All the tribes of the earth will, but but particularly Israel will mourn of him. And look at the description again. There's four groups that's pulled out. Uh, one is David, representing who? The kings. Then there is the tribe of Levi, representing the priests. There's Nathan, representing the prophets. And then there's a guy, Shammai. Who is that guy? Why is he given special attention? Who is Shammai? Do you know him? It's a little more obscure person. We got prophet, priest, and king. These are the people, these are the Zionists. These are the people that are, that are gung-ho for Israel right now in the land. They're all ready to build a temple. They're all ready to serve God. They're all ready to, you know, they've got all the Garb, they've got the, the, the things hanging, their, their sides of their beard, they're, they're, they're not cutting. If you go to Israel, they're there. They're the Zionists. They're there. They're prophet, priest, and king, but they're of the Old Testament. They are not washed in the blood of the Lamb. So we got those three described. These are the diligent, vigilant um, Jews who are trying to bring back their faith, but without Christ. They missed him, Messiah. But they still want to keep all the law, the Judaizers. So we got prophet, priest, and king. But then we got Shammai. Why in the world is he mourning? And who does he represent? Well, Shammai, let me just set the story. David 
is being chased out of Jerusalem by his own son Absalom. And Shammai, who is one of the last descendants of Saul, of Saul's household, follows David and curses him and throws rocks at him. And the people with David want to just kill him right on the spot. David says, no, 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 God might have told him to do that to me. And so David tells him, no, no, if the Lord tells him to curse me, who am I to shut him up? What a wonderful testimony in contrast to what we saw this morning huh, in the message. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Here's David being wrongly cursed and yet willing to receive it. That's humility. To make sure, If God wants to curse me today, then I need to receive that and I'm not going to yell back. I'm not going to do an injury to him. Once David is restored... David tells Solomon, or the day that David's restored, they, everybody wants, let's get Shammai and string him up. And David says, no, no, not today. Nobody's going to die today. I'm back as king. This is time for celebration. No one's dying today. And then he takes Solomon, puts his arm around and says, son, there are some people you're going to have to take care of when you become king. And among them is Shammai. And Shammai is the guy, Solomon looks at him and says, here's the deal. You build yourself a house here in Jerusalem and you're going to live here the rest of your days. As long as you live in Jerusalem and don't leave the city gates, you'll live. You ever walk out of the city, you're dead for what you did to my dad. You cursed the Lord's anointed. Somebody says, that's a great deal. He thought he was a dead man right there. I mean, he's avoided death three times, you know. I mean... He's doing great. He avoided it that day he cursed. He avoided it when David came into his back into his kingdom. And he avoided it when Solomon became king. So he's doing well. And then a slave runs away and he leaves Jerusalem to go chase his slave. And apparently Solomon had somebody watching the guy all the time. Word gets back to Solomon. As soon as the guy arrives back in Jerusalem, he says, you're dead. That's Shammai. What does Shammai represent? Those of Israel who curse even Israel. The Jews who aren't trying to serve God as prophet, priest, or king. And there's a lot of secular Jews out there. I believe Shammai represents the secular Jews in Zechariah. That you're going to have the, the descendants of David, the descendants of Nathan, the descendants of Levi. You're going to have all of them. And then you're going to have the descendants of Shammai. And they're all going to realize, what have we done? We, we missed it. We missed him. The one that our whole religion points to. We pierced him. We killed him. We crucified him. Even the secular Jews are going to mourn. Even the ones who curse the God of their fathers and curse the Lord's anointed. The cursers of the Lord's anointed Jesus Christ being the ultimate, the Lord's anointed, are going to mourn. Does that equal believing faith? Not yet. But even the Jews are going to see Christ. So the idea that this is all in secret and the only ones who are going to hear the trumpet and see Christ in the clouds is going to be Christians is foreign to the Bible. Repeatedly it says that everyone is going to see the face. Everyone's going to know who he is. Everyone is going to realize, whoa, that's a bad thing. 
That's a really bad thing. Jesus really did come. None of them are going to come to Christ. But they are going to mourn the fact that they didn't get to go. Because they cursed the anointed one. And even the devout Jews today will mourn. How many of them will survive the seven years of assault on them by the man of sin? Well, really, it's only three and a half years of assault on them, as well as having to uh, negotiate the wrath of God being poured out to survive these seven years to be the nation of Israel at the end um, is something we're going to discuss later on. But here at this event, I want you to see how public it is. This is the event for us who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And the idea that somehow we're all going to disappear, nobody's going to know what happened, is, is wrong. They don't need a video for them to stick, a DVD to stick in their computer or a YouTube video to figure it out. They will have seen the Lamb, His face, in the clouds. They will know this event happened. It'll be, it'll be global and everyone will see it. Every nation will know it has happened. Boom. First-hand knowledge. And I got one other verse for you to go to. Let's look at that one. About this morning. Isaiah 61. I know I'm kind of dumping a lot of verses, but I, I have to substantiate this because so many have contended against this. I, I don't understand how they can contend against it because I think I don't see how you can take A, B, and C and not make them equal when they all say the same thing. Um, Isaiah 61. Uh, let's look at, let's start at verse 1. It's really verse 2 and 3 I want to talk about. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken heart, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, um, when we start to deal with Israel, um, which this passage is very pointedly working on, uh, we find that the acceptable year of the Lord is a day of comfort and deliverance and all these good things, but there's one little phrase in verse 2 that kind of doesn't seem to fit with everything else, does it? I mean, you read verse 2, to comfort the mourn, to console them, to give beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, garment of praise, Trees of righteousness, planting of the Lord, the glory of God. We go, this is all very wonderful. But there's one little phrase before it happens. So here's the acceptable year of the Lord. The year of the Lord comes. There's one thing in there that just doesn't seem right. And it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Before there's comfort comes vengeance. And that word vengeance is pretty much the same as wrath. And so the outpouring of the wrath of God is the precursor. But I want you to notice, so we have these people mourning, 
who are going to be comforted, but they are mourning the fact that the day of vengeance of our God has come. And notice who's God. It's our God. That that God is going to pour out his vengeance. And, and this mourning is the whole idea that, that we should have accepted the Lord. And now there's this period of vengeance of the outpouring of God's wrath. And then there will be comfort. Then there will be consolation. Then there will be the establishment of trees of righteousness. Then there will be uh, garments of praise for the spirit, uh, replacing the spirit of heaviness um, will be the planting of the Lord. And so um, the mourning that's starting there is valuable. It's not hopelessness. It's a mourning that we have totally rejected the Messiah. We won't do that again. Now they have to deal with the vengeance of God for seven years. The vengeance of men for three and a half years. They're going to have to bug out. They're going to, all the preppers out there, the ones who really need to be preppers are the Jewish people because they're going to have to do it for seven years. They're going to have to have a place to hide. Uh, God set up Jordan as a wonderful place to hide for them um, from men, but in terms of being from God, they're going to have to deal with it, and they're going to mourn for seven years. And then when Christ returns, we're going to see Israel coming to him and accepting him as their king and Lord and deliverer, Messiah. And God will comfort them, console them, plant them, clothe them, make them trees of righteousness. So this is, we talk about the acceptable year of the Lord, this wonderful event, but there is this thing that's going to bring mourning on the people of Israel, and it's the vengeance of God. And vengeance produces this mourning, and the mourning then eventually leads to comfort. And so, whatever we want to say about the seven years of the outpouring of God's wrath on the nations, for the nation of Israel, it's a vital period of time where they are broken in their spirit. And it begins by them seeing Jesus and recognizing what he is and who he is. And then they, and they alone, now they have 144,000 witnesses. And I believe those witnesses are for Israel, particularly 12,000 from every tribe out there being missionaries to the Jews, both the kingly Jews, the priestly Jews, the prophetic Jews, and the cursing Jews. They're all going to get it. They're all going to end up mourning, and they're all going to receive comfort and consolation and clothing and and righteousness and planting. They're all going to get that when the seven years are over and Christ comes back. All of this is wrapped up in all this that we saw prior to Revelation. And when we come to Revelation chapter 1, John knows what's the most important event. He knows the one you're all looking forward to. It's the same one he was looking forward to. The day of the Lord, the, the coming of Christ. And so, of all the prophetic things you're going to see in Revelation, right away in chapter 1, you're confronted with, Christ is coming, and here's what it looks like. Just like what Jesus said, just like what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about, just like what I'm going to describe later on in chapter 6, just like what the prophets talked about in Isaiah and Zechariah and, and all of, and 
Zephaniah, I'm sorry. All of this is culminated in this one day. And the result of that is going to be <laughs> Christ's statement. Powerful words. Now he speaks. Having been seen, now he speaks. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning, the end. I am the one who is and was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. Jesus is the Father. He is the Almighty. He is the Eternal One. He is the same. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the Father of one. That's all out of the book of John. Same author. For him, there's no problem connecting Jesus to the Father, and connecting Jesus to the Spirit. He has no problem connecting those and, and interlacing them tightly for us. And here, Christ having been seen, and now mourning comes in and decides, here's who I am. And this is all built not upon John's imagination and just her his wonter working overtime. This is the plan of the Lord of all the ages. He is coming. And the consistency that we see here is critical to really picking up and letting the Bible reveal itself, show itself. We are not playing hide-and-seek. We are not bringing our imagination to the pages. We are not bringing our prejudices to the pages. We're letting the words speak for themselves. And if you're taking issue with what I'm sharing, chronologically or theologically, uh, I want to just challenge you. All I've given you is all the references. Your struggle is you, many in our camp want to say these aren't the same event. And I don't get it. I don't get it. If you can correct me, please do so. But you're going to have to have a lot of verses to go with the ones I just shared with you. To go against the ones I just shared with you. And I can't find them. And this consistency is wonderful because now we are prepped and ready. John has just told us this big event is coming. Let's find it. We already did. But let's see what's between now and then. And that's what Revelation is about. So we can be ready when the Almighty comes. So that we're not among the people on earth mourning, but we're the redeemed in his presence, priests and kings. That's the choice. That's why we preach prophecy and it can be evangelistic. Is you can either be a priest and a king when Christ comes or you can be a mourning one on earth with little hope unless you're Israel. You choose. But you have to choose now. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you again for your truth, for its clarity and simplicity. Uh, and Lord, we confess that we bring a lot to complicate it that we don't need to bring and that that has brought division among your people and confusion that when you say I'm here to reveal we think you're there hiding and Lord forgive us of that in the midst of all that confusion we see that men have introduced error and opinion Error that 
lets us off the hook for doing the work of the church, of evangelism and discipleship. That work leaves us off the hook of being righteous and faithful in this age. And Lord, we are sorry. We don't want to be counted of that number. Lord, we want to be ones who listen and obey the words of your prophecies. Help us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.